0: You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am Dr. Michael Benson, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Fishman. Dr. Fishman is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at New York University School of Medicine. He is the director and principal investigator for the National Ovarian Cancer Early Detection Program supported by the National Cancer Institute. Today we are talking about ovarian cancer Dr. Fishman, we are going to move on from epidemiology to common presenting symptoms. As a practicing obstetrician-gynecologist myself, I can tell you at least twice a week I have patients coming into the office who are complaining of abdominal bloating or some kind of vague pelvic pain. This is typically code words for I'm worried that I might have ovarian cancer. What can you tell our audience about the most common presenting symptoms of ovarian cancer at diagnosis?
1: There is no definitive symptomatology unique to ovarian cancer. So, again, the problem we have is that the organs are internal, and every woman will have different complaints. Some are aware when they ovulate. Some will not be aware when they ovulate. So the ovarian discomfort is is truly individualized. Whenever a woman has complaints of bloating, fullness, discomfort, When you have 23 feet of small bowel in your your pelvis and nine feet of colon and your ovaries are maybe two inches in diameter, it's very common for the ovarian process to be overlooked. You have to think about disease entities in order to rule them out. And the idea of a pelvic examination can tremendously inhibit one's ability to analyze the ovaries. There are multiple studies that show that there are severe limitations with the pelvic exam, even under the most skilled surgeon's hands. So if one suggests that the accuracy is 50%, I think that if a woman has complaints of abdominal discomfort that don't sound right, and their pelvic examination is normal, I would certainly agree with a ultrasound just to evaluate the adnexa and the uterus to make sure there's nothing obviously abnormal. If all of that is normal by all criteria, then I think further evaluation of the GI tract would be appropriate. The limitation is the pelvic examination, and it's not a perfect exam, and the ultrasound definitely is definitive. The problem comes into play, Michael, when you have an adnexal mass that you're not really sure what it is because ultrasound is not definitive. We and many others have published studies demonstrating that ultrasound is very good at detecting advanced stage ovarian cancer, but it is severely restricted or worthless, actually, at detecting early-stage ovarian cancer. And the reason for that is that by the time we often see a lesion that's cancer, it's already metastasized throughout the abdominal cavity. I think if you're going to go down the road of ultrasound, one has to be, both as a clinician and patient, that it is not definitive. If you see a mass, it could be cancer. And not every mass warrants surgery, but again, the biggest the most difficult thing we have is a patient who has a history of endometriosis and you see something that you think could be an endometrioma, there's a slight chance it could be cancer. So you may ultimately have to take the patient to the operating room to make a diagnosis.
0: When we're talking about diagnosis, a question comes to mind because you mentioned ultrasound. Does CT or MRI have any role in a primary evaluation of the ovaries?
1: I think that almost everyone would agree that the best way to visualize the adnexa and and uterus, definitely the adnexa, is through the transvaginal ultrasound route. I think that gives superior visualization, and that would be my first choice. The abdominal ultrasound is okay, but the transvaginal gives the best visualization of any diagnostic imaging modality.
0: CT and MRI don't immediately come to mind, is that correct?
1: I would go as the OBGYN. First with my pelvic exam, and primarily not necessarily trying to assess the adnex in the uterus, but really making sure that the rectovaginal septum truly was smooth with no evidence of nodularity because the rectovaginal septum really holds the key to a disease in the pelvis, and it cannot be visualized by any imaging modality. That just is a very difficult area to interpret then the next move would be a transvaginal ultrasound. That would be my recommendation. And if that was negative, then I would move on to, you know, whether it's a CAT scan or MRI. It it really doesn't make a difference. But at least you know if the ovaries appear normal and the pelvic exam is normal and the rectovaginal exam is normal, then you should be able to make the patient feel well. However, caveat, if you see fluid in the cul-de-sac, that could be a, a sign of cancers such as primary peritoneal carcinoma. Again, an increased amount of peritoneal fluid has to make one think if a patient's having symptoms, you have to do the whole workup. This is the exception rather than the rule. So if everything looks normal, there's no increased free fluid, the ovaries look normal, the uterus looks normal, your exam is normal, I would say to the best of your ability, you you've ruled out anything gynecologic.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about staging? Are we using a T and M uh, staging for ovarian cancer as we do for everything else?
1: No. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I think personally it's good. The staging of gynecologic malignancies adhere to the International Federation, the FIGO staging, which is surgical staging for ovarian cancer. Surgical staging is the way to make the diagnosis and to determine whether the patient truly has stage 1 disease or stage 4 disease. By performing a thorough evaluation of the pelvis and upper abdomen removing retroperitoneal lymph nodes, biopsies all over the place, omentectomy basically searching for microsco- evidence of microscopic disease.
0: Now, can you tell us just the basic outline of the different stages, one through four, without getting into 3A, B, C, D, and E?
1: My bias as a gynecologic oncologist is that all can- gynecologic malignancies should be treated by a gynecologic oncologist. And the reason for that is this is what we're trained to do, and the staging is guaranteed to be performed. The search for disease is is relatively straightforward. Stage 1, if you will, is confined to the ovaries. Stage 2 may involve other pelvic organs, including adhesions to the pelvic peritoneum. Stage 3 is usually thought of as upper abdominal disease of of different sizes. And stage 4 is disease, if you will, outside of the abdominal cavity or parenchymal disease in organs such as the liver spleen.
0: When we talk about staging I almost hate to ask but I feel obligated to can you tell us a little bit for epithelial ovarian cancer about the 5 and 10 year survival rates
1: the incidence of finding stage 1 disease is relatively unusual maybe 10 to 15% of the time and these patients routinely have an excellent prog- overall have an excellent prognosis the prognosis is not only based on the stage of disease but also the tumor histology, and the grade of the cancer. So if you will give me severe liberty, the stage 1 disease, if it's a well-differentiated tumor, can have over 90% five-year survival, and the patients may not require adjuvant chemotherapy. Stage 1 poorly differentiated carcinomas may have a significant decrease in survival depending on the histology, and always require adjuvant chemotherapy. The stage 2, which makes up about 15% of the epithelial ovarian cancers, studies will show between 60 and 70% five-year survival. Stage 3 is the most commonly found stage of disease at time of diagnosis, where 75% of the women are found with advanced stage disease. Their prognosis again depends on whether it's stage A, B, or C, and the histologies associated. It really depends on whether the patients are able to be optimally debulked where there's no residual tumor palpable or suboptimally debulked. And these patients can have a survival that can range from 40 percent, unfortunately, down to 12 percent. And stage four can be found as a positive pleural fusion or brain metastases. They're all stage four disease. And survival for these patients, again, can be essentially 0 to 12%.
0: That's pretty grim, which is what I think the general population perceives and certainly what I did. Can you get ovarian cancer in the absence of ovaries? The
1: late term ovarian cancer in the absence of ovaries is is incorrect. There's a rare disease that is frequently coded under the disease of ovarian cancer that's not. It's called primary peritoneal carcinoma. And Peritoneal carcinoma is seen in about 1% to 3% of women who have had their ovaries removed. And in my opinion, it is a separate disease unto itself. It's the lining of the peritoneal cavity, which has a embryologic derivation similar to that of the, the surface epithelium on the ovary. And it looks exactly the same. But if one's had their ovaries removed and they were completely benign, it just doesn't make any biologic sense to me to call a cancer that developed 5 to 15 years later that looks completely different because it's malignant uh, ovarian cancer. So primary peritoneal cancer is a disease unto itself. It's very rare. It is aggressive and is treated exactly the same as epithelial ovarian cancer with the same treatments and same reagents.
0: What about a 35-year-old woman who's had perhaps three children and during an ultrasound to check on the size of her fibroids, which are perhaps... 12-week size, a 3-centimeter complex mass seen in one ovary. Should the doctor go right to laparoscopy, laparotomy? Should the doctor just repeat an ultrasound and do nothing if there's no change over time? What, With that uh, incomplete hypothetical, what can you suggest?
1: Well, I think that what we try to do with the ultrasound is make sure that everyone realizes that ultrasound cannot determine histology. All it can do is make suggestions based on architectural analysis and vascular analysis. We and others have published that the architecture is part of the picture. Then one would ask, is there aberrant vascular? So when somebody as you describe, who has a complex mass but no aberrant vascularity, I routinely discuss with the patient the limitations of ultrasound and can say that while this appears to be benign, I certainly would not disagree with surgical intervention because that's the only definitive way that you and I as a healthcare provider can know for sure is by removing the abnormal component. Frequently this is a very difficult discussion because we're not clairvoyant. And the issue is if it appears to be benign, you can you can again let let the patients know that Surgery is the only definitive way. Short of surgery, I would recommend that you come back in a set p- period of time, six weeks, three months. It, it, it's completely arbitrary, and there's no evidence to support a definitive best time interval. And then when the patient returns, if they did not want surgery, if it's getting bigger, then I would be much more in advocate of surgical intervention because we don't know for certainty what the pathology is until a pathologist tells us. So I hate to be rushing everybody to the operating room, but we really can't definitively say if it's not a simple cyst, it's very difficult for us to determine which complex masses are concerning for cancer and which ones aren't. By the time we see something that suggests it's a cancer, it's often widespread disease.
0: I want to thank Dr. David Fishman, who has been our guest, and we've been discussing the epidemiology and diagnosis of ovarian cancer. I'm Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinicians Roundtable on Reach MD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals.
1: Thank you for listening to Reach XM for medical professionals on 233.